Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to start this morning's conversation with Alessio DeLongas. He joins us from Invesco. Alessio, as always, we will not ask our guests to be epidemiologists if they are not epidemiologists. What I'm interested in from an investor's perspective this morning is not just how the pandemic data changes, but how investor attitudes changes to those changes in the data. Can you walk me through how you think investors will respond to the latest increase in infections we're seeing across several states? Well, this this beginning of a second wave is quite concerning because I think um, all of us as investors would have expected a second wave, but would have expected it maybe in the fall. Uh, so uh, this second wave starting, especially here in the U.S., um, so early on in the summer is a bit uh, counterintuitive and really a sign that, that reopening is, is a very delicate situation. I think this puts a spotlight also on the reopening process in Europe. We had successful reopening, so to speak, in Asia with the due exceptions, right? In South Korea, for example, we had uh, a concerning rise. But in Asia, broadly speaking, the second waves were contained rather quickly. The, the implications for investors are, are, uh, are meaningful because the rotation between defensive and cyclicals or, say, from growth to value uh, or from large caps to small caps were, were really, really large themes that were taking place in the last couple of weeks. Alessia, there is a belief that the bar to another lockdown is much, much higher because so many of these states have now built out healthcare capacity. The track and trace is far more far forward than it was, say, several months ago. What's your response to that? Well, the, it is natural to assume that over the last three, four months, we, uh, we have gotten more prepared with respect to testing, with respect to uh, amount of uh, capacity in the healthcare system to handle this. Um, I, I think it's reasonable to assume that the second wave will not cut us as unprepared as we were uh, the first time. So in my opinion, again, with that in mind, uh, the investment strategy should be focused on, um, as we have argued before, on actually harvesting more credit premia across the credit spectrum in high yield and investment rate, as these spaces tend to uh, rely uh, more on the amount of monetary stimulus and credit stimulus that we're seeing, uh, which continues. While equities will suffer, to your point earlier about the impact on cyclical, equities will suffer more from the disappointment or lack of uh, momentum in earnings that we're likely to see in the second half of the year. Alessio, if the V-shaped recovery died yesterday with Chairman Powell's persistent comments, how does the equity market adjust to that? I mean, if it's another wall of worry, doesn't that benefit stocks? Well, so maybe not to the same extent, to be honest, because the first wave since the Fed and fiscal stimulus, um, not only the Fed, but globally, was really about... uh, multiples expansion, right? Uh, Stocks rose and there was a V-shaped recovery in stocks that was entirely driven by the price component and multiples expansion. Earnings, as we know, uh, are still in a very, very difficult situation and continue to fall. From this point on, to maintain that recovery in stocks, uh, we need to see earnings growth at the cost even multiples compression or or multiples staying flat. But it's critical here in this second phase of potential stocks rally to see the support from earnings growth. While for credit, as we were, as we were arguing earlier, 
being senior in claims, just being able to avoid a, a serious round of defaults and having the backstop of the Federal Reserve that should allow for credit premium to be harvested by investors. Alessio, let's pick up on that and build. I know that you've been recommending taking credit risk, or you have been taking credit risk within the high yield space over investment grade in order to capture that extra risk premium. I'm trying to understand, though, the Fed backstopping valuations to an extent, but not necessarily preventing companies from going bankrupt as we see the bankruptcy rates rising to the highest level since 2009. So how do you draw this distinction and how big of a risk is it that you're still gonna see this wave of bankruptcies escalate? It, it, it is a serious risk um, and these are risky uh, credits in some parts of the high yield market. From our perspective as asset allocators, the reminder is always uh, to be um, to be very diversified in your in your credit portfolios in, in order to avoid those idiosyncrasies. For more nimble investors, one valid approach this early on into the recovery is to invest in defensive fixed income factors such as uh, quality, uh, high yield credit staying down into the into the uh, curve spectrum into the into the maturity spectrum stay, staying fab, sub five years on both investment grade and high yield and focusing on on um, for the same ratings cohorts on on attractive quality uh, and attractive spreads. So when you look at the fixed income universe, you can uh, draw an analogy as you <coughs> have in equities, focusing on quality and low volatility factors. Um, rather than uh, value mm -hmm. and up in the risk spectrum in credit. Alessio, very quickly here, does tech still lead? I mean, with all the adjustments, the grimness that we heard from Chairman Powell, is that revenue build at the techs the be-all and end-all of the equity market? Uh, tech still still leads in the sense that it's the it's where quality is today, is where the you know in a low growth world. Uh, and in a world where uh, more than ever a, a globalized and diversified source of revenue growth will be important in order to diversify the economic risk, uh, tax still leads. Um, and, and it will provide a little bit less cyclicality, especially at these inflection points where we're beginning to question the sustainability of that V-shape. Alessio, always great to catch up with you, sir. Alessio DeLongas there of Invesco. As John and Lisa have mentioned, there is a change in the air, and it's not funny. There has been good news on the pandemic over the last number of days, a trend improved, and that is abruptly reversed in the last two or three days as the pandemic spreads across this nation and spreads out of control in so many developing economies. Howard Coe is a doctor, he is a physician out of Yale University. And yes, he had public service with Barack Obama in the Department of Health, but far more in the people of the Boston community know this, he has been a true star of medicine in a very medical community. How much so? He's done the rarest of rare things in medicine, He's thrown out the first pitch at Fenway Park, and we're thrilled that Dr. Koh could join us uh, this morning on the pandemic. Dr. Koh, you are so esteemed in dermatology, in oncology, a broad set of internal medicine. Do you buy the idea of a second wave, or is it just a spread of the first wave of this virus? Well, on March 13th, the president declared a national emergency for our country and unfortunately, the latest data indicate that 
that emergency is far from over. We're seeing rising cases and hospitalizations in the West, in the South, in the Southeast, in rural parts of our country. Uh, rising hospitalizations in particular concern all of us because if hospitals are overwhelmed, patients can't get the care they need and deserve. And as we enter the summer and businesses want to reopen, everybody wants to have the confidence that this pandemic is behind us and we can't say that at all. So we have to follow all these trends very, very carefully, especially as we move into the fall and beyond. So, Dr. Koa, I want to draw a distinction between a second wave that stems from people actually in a reopening economy getting back out there and a second wave resulting from policy that perhaps isn't securing against a resurgence in the virus is what we're seeing right now in Texas and Arizona, an inevitable outcome to the reopening of the economy. Well, Lisa, we're very concerned because we we know what works to prevent infections and prevent death, and that is the best public health practices possible. Some states have followed that and watched the indicators and the trends very, very closely as they've opened up. Others have proceeded, despite the fact that cases and hospitalizations and deaths have been increasing. So this is a combination of a biologic threat, but also policy issues that need to be coordinated better on the federal level. Lisa, we have right now 50 states going in 50 different directions. We need a one country, one government approach to this pandemic going forward. Dr. Ko, a lot of people saying there is little appetite to uh, review some of these shutdowns that we saw throughout the nation going forward just because of the economic hit. What other policy tools do you see being effective that could potentially reduce the number of cases and the potential for a serious second wave going forward without shutting down the economy again? So we have to track the trends very closely. That's the number one message here. Uh, We have to watch those cases, hospitalizations, deaths. Uh, We have to target our efforts to high-risk communities. We know, for example, the communities of color have taken a real disproportionate burden of the death and suffering to date. Uh, We have to make sure that the testing and the contact tracing and the preparations for PPE for the fall and beyond have to be coordinated at the highest level. These are the things we have to be paying attention to to as one country, not 50 states going forward. Howard Cohen, Harvard professor. Doctor, fantastic to catch up with you this morning, sir. Thank you very much for your input. Right now, George Borey with us. He's with Wells Fargo, and he writes brilliant, brilliant notes summarizing the what to do in the fixed income markets. George Borey, what do I do right now? I've got a small pot of money. I don't want to be in equities. I own enough Apple. I own enough Amazon, whatever. And I need coupon. Where is it? Tom, good morning. John, Lisa, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. You ask one of the most important questions I think all investors face uh, today, Tom, is sort of what do I do with my money? And, you know, what people have done with their money in the last, you know, call it a couple of months is we've seen a massive rush into into very secure money market and government-like securities, specifically in the fixed income markets. You've seen money market funds kind of grow by up 
to $2 trillion. It's truly a spectacular amount of money. Um, now, historically, that money will tend to stay in the, in the front end of the curve while the economy uh, starts to kind of shake itself out. And as we've seen today, uh, you know, we're seeing a, a bit of a risk adjustment as, you know, people take a little bit of a breather after a pretty spectacular run in most markets. And I think at this particular point in time, it is still a good idea to sort of incrementally move yourself out of the out the risk spectrum. Um, yields are very low. Cash yields are zero, effectively. Um, and keeping, maintaining income is going to be an increasing challenge as we move forward. Uh, the Fed told us yesterday, Fed funds are staying at zero, are uh, very close to zero, through the end of 2022. That means the reach for yield for any saver, for any investor, is going to be uh, is going to be pretty significant. And Tom, you and I've been on the I've been on the show for many years. We've t- we've discussed this. Uh, this is not a new phenomena. It's just something that it's a reminder. It's going to be with us for a long period of time. So we look for safe places to park money to basically try and earn a little bit of income and protect your capital. Capital protection is absolutely critical, and we find many places in the world of fixed income to be able to do that. Well, George, am I long risk because I'm long this economy or long risk because I'm long financial repression? I think, well, you are, you, you, you are long risk up to a point. I mean, I think what the Fed has done over the last, uh, you know, certainly over the last two, three months, you know, is there's been a massive, uh, reduction in volatility. And I think what the Fed's done very well is they've, they've allowed markets to reopen. They've reliquified markets. They've repressed volatility. Uh, and, you know, there's, I guess there's some theoretical limits to how, uh, how much, uh, risk they can ultimately repress, but it, that we don't see to have reached that point yet, uh, but they've been very successful at reliquifying markets. Now that's encouraged investors to basically reach back out the risk spectrum. The, the the basic mantra of "Don't fight the Fed," you know, is alive and well today, and markets have responded accordingly. Now, yesterday, I think the Fed did a, a very interesting, very interesting kind of pivot, if you will. Uh, you know, I, the way we viewed it is they delivered a very strong statement of concern. They highlighted the uncertainty. It wasn't necessarily new information, but it was a stark reminder that the out the outlook is is very unclear, and 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 they've increased credit availability. They've allowed reasonably healthy borrowers to access capital markets, but credit availability it might smooth an economic shock, but it doesn't eliminate the economic cycle. And I think that's what they told us yesterday. You know, expect a long, drawn out. Um, recovery with the potential of more shocks. And so you're seeing markets respond accordingly. George, to see the cycle play out means that we are going to continue seeing bankruptcies. When you say going out the risk spectrum, are you talking triple C's, even though there is the high degree of likelihood the Fed will not backstop these companies? Lisa, I think you make an excellent point. You know, in the world of fixed income is, is tranched by risk, uh, typically by ratings. In the higher quality companies, we're talking triple A to mostly triple Bs. You know, those companies have been able to access the liquidity that the Fed has been able to create. And these companies are largely in survival mode right now. They've increased their cash holdings. They've refinanced their maturities. They've basically bolstered up their balance sheets, I think, in anticipation of, you 
you know, rougher times ahead. And I think they've taken what a, what a big, large, mature company should do. They're, they're exercising their financial flexibility. So they're positioned for weaker times going ahead. As you go down the risk spectrum, though, it gets increasingly difficult to do that. And we would still have sort of, I think, a bit of a higher quality bias. Um, as you get further down the risk spectrum, there's less support. You know, the Fed is not willing to, to help these companies. There's uh, less uh, financial flexibility, and then there's very acute economic pressures. So our central expectation is that default rates are going to continue to rise this year, you know, upwards of 8 to 10 percent uh, on a trailing 12-month basis. Now, that's not a historical high, but it, it's certainly a very uh, kind of stressed level, and that means there's more pain to come. So when you go down the risk spectrum, our, our point of focus is cash flow durability. There are functioning companies, you know, in the single B, double B, maybe some triple C's that are that are functioning, that actually have durable cash flow, yep. and they actually have very limited borrowing needs. So those companies are good opportunities, but they're few and far between. Hey, George, we've got to leave it there. Send our best to the team, won't you? George Borey of <clears throat> Wells Fargo. Right now, and this is in celebration of constructive infrastructure in America, is Amy Liu. She's at the Brookings Institution, but far more importantly, does urban policy and is known for success. Her public service to the nation under Henry Cisneros is noted, but far more, her policy program at Brookings is truly world-class. Amy Liu, thank you so much for joining us. We are celebrating in New York with a pandemic the miracle that is a new terminal at LaGuardia. 100% of our viewers and listeners want to know why we can't do more LaGuardia's coast to coast. Why is it so hard to succeed at infrastructure in this country? Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, the good news is there is bipartisan support for infrastructure reform and um, investments in infrastructure. The challenge right now is there is not agreement on um, how to finance that infrastructure or what is the uh, infrastructure of the future. And there's enormous debates that we can't just continue to repave highways um, in the same way or connect rural areas together. Uh, as the uh, Highway Act uh, had traditionally done. But instead, we need to invest in more digital infrastructure, global connectivity, as you mentioned, um, uh, and um, more multimodal cho choice, given the fact that people today move in very different ways. So we do need to um, think about a future-oriented um, infrastructure with a much more diverse mix of public-private resources. Okay. I, I, let me make clear, folks, I'm the only one in this conversation that can remember Dwight David Eisenhower and the advent of the interstate highway system, and tons has been written about that and all. Why can't we have an interstate highway system of the digital world? Why can't America be Apollo class on that, go to the moon class on that? Um, I do think the U.S. is incredibly behind in thinking about a world-class 
um, modern infrastructure um, the way a lot of our international peers have done. Um, we actually need a vision for infrastructure. I think what's so interesting right now is we've had calls for even up to you know a trillion dollars of an infrastructure package, but no one has said um, what that infrastructure is. We do need air connectivity. We do need water sewer infrastructure upgrades and to make sure that every single household, including those in Flint, have access to clean water. We have to have digital infrastructure, as you said, like a new digital highway. And each of those systems um, are financed differently, right? They're not going through the state DOT systems the way uh, the highway system was built. It's a lot more complicated, which means we need even stronger public-private partnerships to make sure that um, this more diverse and broader set of infrastructure um, is uh, supported, invested, and modernized. Amy, we're talking about infrastructure, which may be in the future when the government gets together with some sort of infrastructure bill to help stimulate growth and do some of these major projects. But in the here and now, we're reopening economies. This week, New York City reopening. And there's a question of what the fate of the of the United States' major cities will be coming out of this pandemic, given the fact that the spread has been fastest in some of these areas. How concerned are you about the death of the modern city as we know it and sort of the dwindling in population that a lot of people are calling for? Well, first of all, I think we have to remind people that um, this pandemic is impacting everyone, no matter what kind of community you live in. In fact, um, the fastest growth in new cases are not in the big cities, but they're in the suburbs. They're in the smaller cities and the rural areas. So the pandemic actually has no borders. So when I hear questions about what is the future of the city uh, in a post-COVID world, there's an assumption that density puts you at high risk. Yet the reality is that the risk infection is, is true no matter where you live. And in the long run, what we've seen is that <clears throat> cities will continue, have continued to rise over the centuries. And the knowledge economy, the global economy continues to reward places with a high density of talent, of amenities, top-tier research in, uh, universities, global airports, and other innovative firms. So I don't see that changing, but only accelerating in the years to come. Um, but that said, I do think for high-cost cities like New York, like the Bay Area, there are real questions about whether one can afford to live in a superstar city without a job right. or with economic uncertainty. You know, Facebook and Twitter, as you know, have announced that some of their employers employees can now telework permanently. And that may spur some workers to jump at the opportunity to move to more affordable cities in the heartland, which to me is actually really great for those cities and still good for the economy overall. Well, we're going to have to leave pleasure. it there, Dr. Thanks Lee. Thank me. you so much for joining us. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.